I started running again recently because I'm trying to make this a hot boy summer. Um, and the hardest thing, if you've ever run, ran before or gone through seasons of running and you stop and you start again, the hardest thing to get down is pacing. Because if you don't pace right, you're going to burn yourself out. Now, I don't know about you, but I have a love-hate relationship. <laughs> I have a love-hate relationship with running with people. Um, I love it because I love the camaraderie. I love, like, the togetherness. But the thing I hate about running with people is it always throws off my pace. Uh, the last time I went running with Seabell was the only time I went running with Seabell. <laughs> And I remember when we were running, we we're just getting to know each other. When you're running with someone for their first time, you're, you're kind of feeling out how fast do they run. Like, and the whole time, like, I'm running and I'm insecure that I'm slowing her down. And so I start speeding up ahead. And I honestly think the same thing's going through her head, but I don't want to admit it. And so she's running faster. And what we're doing is we're just running faster and faster and faster. We ran a short amount of time, but I kid you not, it was the most tired I had ever been. We only ran three miles, but I was so winded and so tired. I hope Isaac's tuning in. One time I ran with Isaac, you know, before he uh, asked out Christine. And this is when he chose to ask me all of his relationship advice on our run. He was asking me the deepest questions about love. And I'm just trying to keep up. It was throwing off my pace, right? When we move at a, at a pace faster than we were made to move at, we burn out. I don't know about you, but this last year was extremely exhausting for me. How many of you just by show of hand or virtual show of hand have experienced burnout in this past year? It's been an exhausting year, hasn't it? They say there are three signs that you are burning out. The first is exhaustion. You're constantly tired physically, mentally, emotionally, sometimes even spiritually. The second sign is cynicism. You no longer want to do more. You do the bare minimum just to get by. You no longer have time to dream. You cut out things that are good for the soul. There's no more room for creativity, innovation, or excellence. You're just trying to survive. And the third sign of burnout is blame. You start blaming yourself. Why can't I do this? Why am I not strong enough? Why can't I keep going? What's wrong with me? And maybe you've experienced one or all of these symptoms of burnout. Um, there's this author for BuzzFeed who wrote, exhaustion means going to the point where you can't go any further. Burnout means reaching that point and pushing yourself to keep going, whether for days or weeks or years. Dave Lomas from Reality SF, he puts it this way. He says, burnout is when your soul can no longer bear the weight of your life. When your soul can no longer bear the weight of your life. I've preached about this before, but one year ago, I had an epic meltdown. Right as summer was hitting, I was burned out trying to figure out how to navigate church online, learning all this live stream stuff. Thank God for Ian. Like he's been learning all this stuff, but I was alone back then trying to figure out all this live streaming. It was hard. And I found myself burnt out. And the thing is living in a city like San Francisco, living in a time like we're living in right now, for most of us, burnout isn't a place we visit here and there. It's become our permanent dwelling place. It's no wonder why we're always tired. It's no wonder why we have no capacity to dream or to pray or to do the things we know are actually good for our soul. 
Nothing about the hustle culture of our day and age is designed to help us live healthy and sustainable lives. I am preaching to all the Enneagram type threes out there, right? This hustle culture, this mentality that we have to keep doing more and more, keep producing more and more is not conducive to a sustainable life. And nothing about the culture of our city is designed to help us have better relationships and healthy family lives. And nothing about the culture of tech. I mean, I love all that tech has done for us in our city. But hear me, church, nothing about the culture of your workplace was designed to help you have a good work-life balance. I hear all my friends in tech say they give us unlimited time off. But that's, that's, a, that's a mirage. It's an illusion. Because you actually can't do it. It's not conducive to having a good work-life balance. Living in a city like ours, we're fighting an uphill battle. In a culture of exhaustion, anxiety, we are fighting a battle for rest. But here's the thing. It's not just the problem with the structures of our society. I would argue that it's actually a problem within. Look at this past year. For decades, people have been fantasizing about one day being able to work from home. I mean, our immigrant parents can't even fathom it, right? But for the longest time, there are articles decades ago saying, oh my God, one day, there is coming a day where we could finally work from home and finally pay attention to the things that we want to pay attention to, have time and space to do all the things that we wanted to do, but never had time to do. But now that we are working from home, at least most of us, the question is, have things really changed? If anything, this past year was more exhausting. If, if anything, this past year, we spent more time invested in work and all the things that we had to produce. We had less time for the things that actually mattered. We worked way past the time we were supposed to stop. Ooh, I felt conviction sweep across the internet right now. Some of us keep working past the hours we're supposed to stop working. There's something misaligned in here. And so why is our culture so prone to burnout? Why are we so prone to driving ourselves into the ground in exhaustion? The question is, what is misaligned within us that causes us to do this again and again and again? And how do we live in a better way? To answer these questions, we're going to look today at our relationship with time. Ian McGill Christ, you know he's holy and anointed because he has Christ in his name. He says this, time is the context that gives meaning to everything in this world. And conversely, everything that has meaning for us in this world, everything that has a place in our lives exists in time. You ever wonder how time flies by when you hang out with your bestie? But then time moves excruciatingly slow when you're sitting through one of my sermons, right? You ever wonder, like, time is just so interesting like that. Time gives context and meaning to our everyday lives. And so the solution to our culture of burnout and exhaustion is found when we're able to answer this one question. What does it mean to live faithfully in the time that God has gifted us? How do we steward well our time, the time that God has given to us so graciously as a gift? And so that's what we're going to talk about today. Let me open with a word of prayer. That was just the intro. I know. Time's moving real slow right now. 
God, we thank you for your presence. Would you be here today? Would you open our hearts? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, I want to start with the history of clocks. Do you guys know the history of clocks? All right, I'll tell you. The first clocks were developed during the European medieval age, and they're actually developed by Benedictine monks, people who were removed from society and devoting themselves to pursuing spirituality and pursuing God. And for these monks, every day was scheduled with these bells. And every time they would hear the bell, it would mean it's time to engage in a spiritual activity together. So one bell would ring at noon or something, and they would pray together. Another bell would ring, and they would read scripture. Another bell would ring, and they would spend time in community. And so these monks, their, their days and their spiritual lives were ordered by these bells. And so to ensure that everyone participated in these spiritual activities at the exact same time, they actually developed a tool that measured time with greater accuracy, what's now known as the mechanical clock. And so these monks were the first ones that actually invented the mechanical clock. And these clocks would be set where every time it hit a certain hour, these bells would ring. And so the monks would know we got to engage in spiritual activities. And so in other words, the original purpose of the clock, isn't this amazing, was to enable people to structure their lives around faith and spirituality. But as we move toward the industrial age, to factory workers, to developing cities, to capitalism, we took on a new posture towards time. If you might have heard of this, time is money. Time is money. And the minute hand and the second hand were now added to the clock. Why? They were added all for the purpose of maximizing our time and making the most out of it. Or in other words, making the most money that we could with the time that we have. We moved away from the clock's spiritual roots. While the purpose of the original clock was to help us tap into the rhythm of God, now the clock existed to serve only us, our schedules, our ambitions, our careers, our desires. And the irony is this. While the clock was invented by people who wanted to fully devote themselves rigorously to God, the irony is it ended up as the technology of greatest use to people who were only devoted to themselves and to the accumulation of money. An author puts it this way. He says, in the eternal struggle between God and mammon, the clock ended up favoring the latter. And so now we've become a people trying to fit God into what we're doing rather than trying to fit in with what God is doing. Come on, y'all can testify. Our weeks are scheduled around us. Our time is ordered around us. And we're trying to see, God, can you fit? Can you squeeze into this tiny little space in the morning or in the evening? Now everything is backwards. Now we have a misrepresented relationship with time. And in America, this is most... Uh, pronounced in what our national theology is, which is actually progress. The idea of human progress has become our central guiding doctrine, giving meaning and direction to time. That's why we can't stay still. That's why it's hard. For, I mean, if you've ever done, have you ever done those, those bubbles? I think it's like a cryo bubble or whatever, where you just lay in complete silence and Epsom salt in the water, just floating in complete silence and complete dark. And you're just there for an hour. I don't know if you've ever done that, but it's, it's hard because we're so used to noise. We're so used to the hustle and the bustle of life. 
that it's hard for us to sit still if we're not progressing, making more money, advancing our careers, learning another skill, finding our future wife or husband, then we feel like we're wasting our time. You ever see someone do something really amazing and you ask, what am I doing with my life? Like, Dan started a, his company this year. What am I doing with my life? Gloria learned how to produce music, and she released it on Spotify a few weeks ago. What am I doing with my life? Right? Alex and Jane and Isaac all started a podcast this year. What am I doing with my life? In the theology of progress, we bought into this idea that time is a commodity that exists to serve us, to help us progress. But in the theology of progress... We can't truly rest. And it ends up burning us out and running us into the ground. All this to say, we have a very broken relationship with time. And our relationship with time needs to find redemption in God. I could end the sermon right here and it would be very depressing, but I have good news for you. Augustine once said, God created the world not in time, but with time. In other words, time is a creature. There was a time when time was not and a time when time was. There's time came into existence simultaneously with creation. And so the question is, why then did God create time? Why did he create time? It's a creation. God created time, and I love this. He created time as a gift for us. In other words, time is an expression of God's love for the world. Why? It's in the dimension of time where we're able to experience and perceive God's love for us. If we didn't have time, we wouldn't have been able to experience God's love the way that we do. It's in time where humanity has encountered God's faithfulness again and again and again. We always say for such a time as this, if time did not exist, we would not have this. We would not have encountered God throughout history. We would not have encountered God's love through our lives. And so the purpose of time, why God created time, it was meant as a gift for us to facilitate and sustain love. Think about that. This changes everything. Just if you really think about it, time doesn't exist to make us more productive. Time exists so that we can love better, so that we can receive love more freely How do we know we're using our time well? The question is, is your time spent helping love or hindering love? And I would say for most of us living in our day and age, in our city, our time spent actually hinders love more than it enables and helps love. Well, Augustine was saying that God was is in time, but he's not bound by time. He's saying that God is able to participate in time without being bound to it like we are. Um, I love, I forget who wrote this, but he says that time comes to God as the present of the past, the present of the present, and the present of the future. It's like almost unfathomable. It's like those time movies, right? But every moment, the past The present and the future are all present to God at once. All things are present to him at the same time. And so even though God is not bound by time, he's fully present in it, never absent. 
But when we make time all about progress, we can't be present in the moment. Why? Because we're always thinking about what's next. What more can I do? What goal can I reach? What utopia can I finally arrive at? We're unable to enjoy the gift of time our creator gave us. And so another question, how do we know we're being faithful with our time? The question is, how present are you able to be in your everyday life? And so by these measures of the purpose of time to love and to be present, I fail pretty miserably. I feel like the time that I spend often hinders love and makes me unable to be present rather than to love and to be present. Scott Bader say, he says, the ways we experience, name, and interpret time contribute to the kinds of communities we imagine and inhabit. This is why this is important. How we approach time will decide what kind of community we will be, what kind of people we will be. And right now, I believe the world doesn't need a church that lives the way that they live, that lives in this hustle hustle culture, that does not know how to rest. The world needs something different. And so if we want to be the church that the world needs, a breath of fresh air, a new approach towards life and time, we need to have a redeemed relationship with the concept of time. What if we view time not as a commodity to be used and bent towards our ambitions, but as a gift from a loving creator, not for the purpose of productivity, but for the purpose of fully present love? Imagine what kind of church we could be. When we try to master time, violence becomes inevitable. Simon Carey Holt, she wrote this, prolonged busyness is a state of violence. Shoot, that is a bold statement. Prolonged busyness is a state of violence. According to the Macquarie Dictionary, violence is an unjust and unwarranted exertion of force or power. Such is unchecked busyness, for it is an unwarranted, unjust state, destructive to the human soul, to the community, and even to the earth itself. What's he saying? When we are unnecessarily busy and overproductive, we are being violent to our souls, violent to our communities, violent to our relationships. It is violence. And when we try to master time, we try to master Jesus, who is pronounced the Lord of time. But here's the good news. In Jesus, fallen time begins to encounter its redemption. Time becomes the arena now of redemption and hope. And in Jesus, we get to experience the fullness of time. Now, one thing that we observe about God throughout human history is that he moves very, very slowly. I mean, just look even at the process of evolution. It's a very slow process. I hope one day humans have three arms. I don't know. But until then, it's a very slow process. But it's not because God is lazy or has a lack of interest. The Bible says that God is not slow in keeping his promises. So then what is it? I think it's that God's slowness redefines our understanding of the nature of slow. We want fast food faith. But God wants to cook us a home-cooked gourmet meal that takes many hours of preparation. 
We want cheap wine, but God wants to give us the finest wine that's aged to perfection. It's like pizza, right? It's always better as a leftover. God wants to give us the slow-growing thing, but the better thing. God is a God who takes his time to do things, which is incredibly frustrating for modern-day speed-oriented people like us. I mean, Iris already quoted the psalmist, but in Psalm 13, 1 through 2, How long, O O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? How many of you have ever felt the frustration of the psalmist? How long, O Lord? How long until my dreams are fulfilled? How long until I meet the love of my life, my future spouse? How long until we see justice for our people? God takes his time. I don't know if you know this, but the average speed of a human being and the pace at which they walk is three miles per hour. That's a 20-minute mile, right? And so the average speed that a human being walks is three miles per hour. How many of you know that Jesus walked at three miles per hour? Jesus walked slowly. Slow enough to see the outcasts that society had rejected. Slow enough to feel the tug of a bleeding woman in need of healing. Slow enough to sit and grieve over the death of his friend, Lazarus. Love has a speed. God walks slowly because he is love. And if God was not love, he would move a lot faster than he actually does. But love has a speed. It's a spiritual speed. It's a different speed from the technological speed that we're used to. He's a three-mile-per-hour God. And the point is that love takes time, and love moves slowly. And because God is love, God takes his time. And maybe the greatest relief that I could offer all of y'all today and those tuning in, maybe the only thing that you might remember is this. You are not behind Maybe you're not moving too slow. Maybe you're just moving at the three mile per hour speed of God's love. A bulk of this teaching comes from this book that Krista and I have been reading with one of our mentors. I highly recommend it. It's a book called Becoming Friends of Time by John Swinton. And in this book, the author helps us understand the redemption of time. A lot of what I'm teaching by viewing it through the lens of disability. In a culture that values productivity, speed, and maximizing time, what about those who can't move at our pace, who are unable to be, quote-unquote, productive in our society? And he writes, as time became money, so the disabled became a burden and a handicap. But he writes this in one of his chapters. He says this. This is kind of a long quote, but I'm just going to, Read it. Very powerful. He says, if our comparator is the high-speed, progressive, efficient, and self-sufficient body the standard average European time demands, the disabled body can look only inadequate, deficient, slow, handicapped, abnormal. However, if the benchmark is the three-mile-an-hour God, a God who moves slowly and for whom the transformation of creation is a long and timeful process, things look quite different. 
goes on to say, we may choose to stigmatize, alienate, downgrade, and exclude people for taking up too much of our time, for being slow in pace, speed, wit, or intellect. But in the face of the three-mile-an-hour God, such ways of being in the world become revelatory of what it means to love and to be fully human. In other words, the point he's driving is, what if what we consider normal is actually less aligned to the speed of God? What if we've stigmatized the very people who are meant to teach us what it means to walk in the fullness of time? I find that in our ableist theology, we assume that those who are able-bodied are blessed and those who are disabled are not. And that's why we're always praying, you know, especially in the charismatic church, we're always praying for those who are sick or those with disabilities. And there's nothing wrong with that in and of itself, but there's an attitude behind it that can be harmful, which says, what if those with disability are actually slower and they don't, they're not productive to society and so they're not blessed or important. But here's the thing, all of us, this, this blew me away in the book, all of us will grow into disability, into our old age, all of us will grow into disability. And the question he poses is, what if those with disabilities aren't too slow or too unproductive? What if they're the ones who move at the very speed of God? And so in this entire book, he's, he's teaching us what it means to redeem time by looking at it through the lens of the disabled. And in this one part of the book, he, he quotes one of his friends, John Hall, who's a British theologian who lost his sight in his 50s. And this is what he writes. Michael, who's his work colleague, tells me that he thinks my perception of time has undergone a change since I lost my sight. He thinks that of all the people in the faculty, I am the only one who always seems to have plenty of time. Everyone else is rushing around, chasing their tails, trying to cram every minute with necessary tasks and to squeeze the last drop out of time. I alone seem to have all the time in the world. He goes on to say, I had a disabled friend whose restriction of mobility was such that he could only travel about one mile from his home. That for him was a day's journey there and back. But he once told me that it took him three quarters of an hour to tie up his shoelaces. Heavens, I said, that's a long time. My friend replied that he did not think of it as a long time. That was just how long it took to tie shoelaces. What an interesting and refreshing way to think about time, isn't it? What if instead of being locked into a master-slave relationship of time, we could engage with it differently? And so how do we do this? How do we slow down enough to walk at the speed of love? How do we step into the redemption of time? We're going to go to Hebrews 4, 9 through 11. We're going to wrap this up really soon. This is what Paul writes. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God rests also rests from their works just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. How do we redeem time? It's through the Sabbath. Through the gift of Sabbath. And listen. We preach, millennials love to preach on Sabbath. We teach on it a lot. I mean, we've done it at our church a lot. But here's the thing. No one does it. <laughs> Y'all know the teaching. You've heard this teaching before, but you just don't do it. Because there's something in us that, that's forcing us to keep going, keep working, keep producing. And we can't sit still for a moment to enter into a Sabbath rest. 
But it's in Sabbath that time is sanctified. It's in Sabbath that time is dignified and made holy as it's brought under the command of God. Sabbath restores us. It renews us. It pieces back together what has been fragmented and strained. And Sabbath is much more than just about ceasing work. It's about reconnecting with our origins. It's about reconnecting to the rhythm of God, the speed of his love. It's about living fully present in every given moment. It's about being and stillness over production and movement. And you know, for so many of us, maybe you can resonate. We feel the anxiety of feeling like we're left behind. That we're not as far along in our career as we want to be. We're not married yet while everyone else is getting married. We still have no idea what we want to do with our lives. And there's this anxiety that's driving our lives. If you look at Pharaoh and the the, the narrative of Egypt, what drove Pharaoh, the underlying motivation behind Pharaoh and everything that he did, every wicked thing that he did, do you know what it was? It was anxiety. Underlying everything that Pharaoh did to Egypt and to the Israelites was this underlying fear that we cannot go into another fathom. And so he put everyone, his entire nation, to work. And not just regular work, but he overworked them because of his anxiety. Time became all about production and satisfying human angst and anxiety. Time was all about quenching the never-ending craving for more and more. There could be no Sabbath under Pharaoh. But with Yahweh, things are different. God is not anxious. Anxious. He has no need to be chasing the next deadline or building empires on the backs of others to alleviate his fears. The conclusion to the Exodus narrative, you could sum it up, is this. Wherever Yahweh governs as an alternative to Pharaoh, there the restfulness of Yahweh counters the restless anxiety of Pharaoh. We don't have external Pharaohs anymore. But we do have internal pharaohs. The voice inside that tells us we need to keep doing more. The voice inside that says you haven't done enough. The voice inside that says you aren't enough. The voice inside that convinces us that we're behind, that we need to move faster, that we need to take things into our own hands. Church, we need the restfulness of God to counter the restlessness of Pharaoh. And in our modern day context, Sabbath is that act of resistance against Pharaoh. It frees us from a life defined by production and anxiety. Sabbath helps us resist the artificial urgency of our day and age. It reminds us that we are not behind in God's timing. It keeps us from rushing ahead of God. There's this TikTok video of Justin Bieber that my friend told me about. And it does not paint him in a good light. He's married to Haley Bieber. And there's this video, there's a series of TikTok videos of Justin leaving his wife behind. But not just like rushing on ahead without her, but leaving her with all of his luggage. So there's this one video where the car stops and Justin jumps out of the car, grabs a skateboard and just skates away. And you see Haley like running out of the car, chasing him, and she trips and stumbles. It's so bad. Men, you need to learn, okay? You need to learn, okay? Don't do that. 
But some of us, we do that with God. We try to rush on ahead of him. And he doesn't stumble like Haley Bieber. Trust me, he, he's good. But, but we try to do things on our own. But Sabbath slows down time. It brings us back and says, God, I don't want to move on ahead of you. I need to move at your speed. We're almost wrapping up here. John Swinton, he writes in his book, In God's time, we do not compare ourselves to the strongest, the fittest, the fastest, the cleverest, or the most competitive among us. The only comparison that we make is with the God who walks at three miles per hour, a God who waits for us if we cannot keep up and sits with us if we cannot walk, a God who always has time for us. Slowness is a spiritual blessing rather than than a negativizing label. What if our speed of life was never in comparison to the 25-year-old that started his own company as a millionaire or to that friend who got married and is already having three kids? What if the speed at which we move is just in light of the three-mile-per-hour God who moves at our pace when we're slow, when we're faster? He moves with us. And so today... You know the application because you've been given it a hundred times as a millennial or Gen Z. We need to incorporate the rhythm of Sabbath into our lives. We need to take it seriously. And in fact, I don't even want to call it the rhythm of Sabbath. We need to call it the discipline of Sabbath because it's not something that just happens. We have to be intentional. I don't know if you've experienced this. Most, for most of us, Sabbath looks like this. We work and we work and we work for months, maybe years on end, but there's salvation in the distance. Our trip to Hawaii or our vacation or our time off. And what we do is we work ourselves into the ground and we have this small period of time that's supposed to help us make up that lost ground of rest that we never tapped into during the time when we should have been tapping into it. And so you go to vacation and you while out. Like you, you engage in culinary debauchery, eat everything that you want. You literally binge as much as you can. And then you get back from your vacation and you need another vacation for your vacation because you realize I'm actually still tired that it didn't actually quench the rest that I need. Come on. Did anyone else resonate with that? I mean, that was us a few weeks ago. I went to Hawaii and I'm still tired from Hawaii. There is a problem here, and the problem is that Sabbath was not meant to be this short event that happens every once in a while. Sabbath was meant to be integrated into the regular rhythm of our lives. Some of you have never stopped since college. Think about that for a second. Some of you have never stopped since grad school. Rest can't be this massive catch-up event every few months or years. It has to be a regular rhythm of life. And so this is the Sabbath, a 24-hour period in the week to just stop. You stop working. You stop doing. And this one a lot of people don't think of, but you stop wanting. Some of you, your Sabbath is about going to Target and buying more stuff. But actually, that's not rest. Because the, the quest, the quench for wanting more is still the mindset of Pharaoh, that I don't have enough, so I need more. I need to buy more clothes. I need to get more things. But a day where you stop working, stop doing, and stop wanting. But equally as important as what you stop doing is what you do instead. 
spending quality time with friends and community, spending time in communion with God in prayer and in worship and in meditation, doing things that feed your soul. And so I'm going to lay it out for you real simple as we close here. I'm going to offer you three levels of action plans. We got the basic plan, got the intermediate plan, got the advanced plan, okay? The basic plan is this. Just set healthy work hours in your week. Study hours in your week if you're in school. Work. That means set a cutoff time for when you stop work, where you cease, so that you can actually have time to rest in your day. For some of us, our our work hours are around the clock, and we need to set healthy boundaries, a 9 to 5 if you must. But that's the basic level, the the very basic surface level. Just have a healthier work-life balance. Have a plan in place to end your workday every single day. Intermediate level, practice the Sabbath. Set a 24-hour period in your week. I know for some of us, we're unable to do that because of the nature of our work and our schedules. But try to the best of your ability to schedule a 24-hour period of the week to practice the Sabbath. And the advanced level, this is for the dreamers. This is for the overachievers, the Enneagram type threes. You know how we have to-do lists? Um, Advanced level, I I encourage you and challenge you to create a to-be list. And this is a list of not things that we need to get done or do, but things that help us be. Things that help us stop wanting, stop producing, stop working. Things that help us rest in God. And so it's just an an exhaustive list of things that we can do to enter into God's rest. What are the things that that can help you just be and stop having you move and have you slow down and rest? I'll close with a, uh, a word that God gave me a few years ago. He said, Mickey, so many people in your generation want to be like Katy Perry. They want to be like a firework. But he says, Mickey, I'm not looking for fireworks. I'm looking for torches. He's saying the difference between a firework and a torch is a firework goes off, and in an instant, it's a blaze of glory. But after that moment passes, there's nothing left. He's saying so many people in your generation want to explode and be all over the sky and be colorful and be seen. They want to burn bright, but only for a moment. You see, I'm not looking for fireworks. I'm looking for torches. I'm looking for the one who has a fire sustained throughout their entire life, not just in their 20s when they have a lot of energy, not just when they're young without kids and without a family, but every single moment of their lives, every season, they are carrying the flame of love and passion for me. We cannot carry that fire into old age if we don't learn right now in our young age to live in the Sabbath and to move at the speed of God's love. And so the question I want to pose at the end of this is this. What if instead of being driven by progress, what if we could be driven by love and by being present and by trying not to move at the speed of the world around us, but at the speed of our God? Why don't we close our eyes in a time of response, going to welcome up the worship team. And this is the question I just want you and your time with God to ask and interact with him about. The first question I want you to ask in your time with God is a very simple question. It's simply, God, am I moving too fast? Maybe some of you in here, um, that's not the case, and you feel like you're actually moving slow and at a good pace. But I would bet for the majority of us, when we really ask ourselves and sit and think with it, 
we're moving way too fast. And so I want you to ask God, God, search me, search my heart, search my mind. Am I moving too fast? Am I moving and being fueled by the anxiety of Pharaoh? Or am I being influenced by the people around me and the speed and the pace at which they're moving? Or am I moving slow enough where I'm not rushing ahead of you? What is God saying? What is God speaking to you? Right now, I want to invite you, if you are moving too fast, and you know you need to slow down, and you know you need to invite God's Sabbath rest into your life, what are the anxieties that are fueling your your high-speed life? Is it the anxiety that I'm behind? Is it the anxiety that I don't have enough and I need more? Is it the anxiety that everyone else is experiencing this but I'm not? Is it the anxiety that says, God, will you ever come through? Or do I need to take it into my own hands? What is the anxiety fueling the speed of your life? And right now, I just want you to begin offering it to the Lord. Say, God, you could have this. I will choose to trust in you. I will choose to move at your pace and your speed, knowing that you are the three-mile-per-hour God who will never leave us behind. God, you are the three-mile-per-hour God that will sit with me when I need to stop, that will move with me when I'm pacing slow, that will be with me every moment in this journey while I'm trying to figure it out. You will never move ahead of me. And so, God, I don't want to move ahead of you. And right now, I just want you in your heart, just make a commitment. God, I want to enter into your Sabbath rest. I want to truly receive this gift. I see this image that God has given us, this present, and it's beautifully wrapped. And we've taken it home, and we've just left it in the box. And we're just enjoying the wrapping paper, but we've never opened it. But I I feel like God's saying, in this season, the box is not enough. The wrapping paper is not enough. The ribbon's not enough. Open the gift. Enter into my Sabbath and find life. Find rest. So God, we give our hearts to you. We recommit our hearts to the Sabbath. We want to enjoy your gift of time. We want to move with you, God.